You are listening to Taking Art Apart, a podcast presented by West Den Haag. I am Rosa Sangenberg, visual artist and writer. I am Jael Keiser, philosopher and writer. We are launching an experimental series of themes that one may come across when stepping into the art world, whether as a young artist, established institution or curious viewer. This episode is about authorship and the reception of art. Is art about the artist? What happens when an artwork is finished? Does the artist take responsibility for how it is received? Does it matter if the art is used for a different purpose? Who is really the artist? In this episode, we hear fellow podcaster Yael discuss her research on the death of the author, a concept originally attributed to the arts of writing, but nonetheless as relevant in the context of visual arts. We also invited Dutch artist Mark Eisenman for a talk on what happens in the process of art making, dealing with these complicated authorships of art. But first, the creative part, written by Yael for the podcast. A curious conversation that covers the theme from two seemingly opposing perspectives, namely from the two French philosophers and writers of surrealist literature, Jean-Paul Sartre and Maurice Blanchot. Somewhere in France, a museum of modern art is hosting renowned works of art. Maurice Blanchot invited Jean-Paul Sartre to view and discuss it together. They meet up and slowly move from the foyer to the exhibit. Maurice, I don't really understand why you brought me to this museum. You know my views about fine arts. Fine arts fails to be committed. It's only for its own sake. A load of blah, blah, blah. Its purpose falls apart in the face of our profession. Sure, it has some potential, but... Just wait, Jean-Paul. I brought us here to reanalyze the state of things. To reflect on everything and nothing. Usually we go to museums to stimulate the senses or get inspired. To get away from reality by setting foot in a white cube on a day out with the expectation of an entertaining, aesthetic and cultural experience. I understand how you might find this bourgeoise, believe me. Perhaps your reluctance will only aid our aim, help our cause. Now let's walk on, shall we? Blanchot takes the lead and walks into the exhibition space. Sartre follows. The first artwork they pass is a print by Banksy called Nepal. Can't beat that feeling from 2004. All right, so seeing as we're both writers, what if we were to imagine this artwork as a work of literature. We, the audience, are the readers, and the artist is the writer. But where does the work begin, and where does it end? And at what point does it come into existence? A work is like a process of dying. It slips out of the author's hands at the moment that it's finished, and it is never what one intended. There's this uncertainty about its effect, and unpredictability that is not in control of the author. That is why, for me, literature and art go hand in hand. The artwork takes on a life of its own. The only thing Banksy did here was put a few images together that, out of context, have no relation to each other, but in context, are loaded with meaning. The response is completely up to the audience. And what a response it evokes in us. Suddenly, I, I feel disturbed. 
angry, political, cynical, and critical. Yes, critical of American capitalism. He animatedly waves a finger in the air. Seeing as it's using an image as a sign committed to a political narrative, would you put art in line with literature here? The work in front of us could actually be in line with your suggestion, Maurice. I see literature as a mutual gift of freedom between the reader and the writer. The writer is posing appeal to the reader and demands an investment. Freedom must be the end goal in order to make it exist. Having to relate to the work and form an opinion. As an illustration, I always like to contrast literature with a newspaper. A newspaper doesn't evoke anything, mean anything, in prose, and perhaps in this work too. One is moved by the human seizure of what is displayed. I would think in art, the composition is the end, and the art being merely an instrument for something else. However, this work uses loaded imagery by putting familiar icons together in this random fashion you have to fill in the blanks as the viewer and work along with the artist. It invites engagement. Just like I believe writers should write for an audience, I feel that the artist also tried to tell us something, an unambiguous message. A few steps away, they come across a white urinal, a ready-made sculpture called Fountain, produced by Marcel Duchamp in 1917. <laughs> Now that's more like it. You see, my main concern is to face the extreme consequence of the modern condition, where there is no anchorage for authority or meaning anymore. God is dead. You talk of freedom as a starting and ending point, but behind that is an original instability at the core of ourselves. What kind of experience is this, and how to deal with this instability in thinking? This here is a possible approach. It is very experimental and open for the taking. Personally, a work that is more situated rather than abstract avant-gardism is more effective for trying to answer the question of the modern condition. Here, the artist doesn't show an evident plan or project. There's no context. It's a deliberate evasion of responsibility. Duchamp's ready-mades are not made of sculptures, but produced ordinary objects, not authentically signed, and not even made by himself. It is completely useless. Instead of ultimate ambiguity, art needs the sense of recognition. Your frustration is making me frustrated, John Paul. You keep talking in terms of agency, utility, and goals. I'd rather see literature without use. What is elementary is the literary experience not the material or content. The reception has a productive quality to it and actually does all the work. What is at stake, admittedly, is a matter of unknowing from artist to art and art to artist. But this is a space of unlimited freedom where anything is possible. We are not the source of agency, neither as artist nor as audience. Nobody makes the work what it is. It happens. It just happens. Perception is about wondering, moving without direction, dispersing. The maker should be betrayed by his own novel. He risks it all, loses himself and the work through the making. Just like the writer will never be able to read his work as if he were a reader. It never completely says what it says. It's a fountain now. It's not a urinal. 
I guess. Now that I think of it, Dada's the ultimate passivity is in fact a resistance. A deliberate decision to resist the status quo. Through ambiguity and refusing a fixed sense, it is provoking and in that, engaging. It questions established truths, even beyond the sculpture itself. How playful. But does it really seize the human condition? Maybe. Trudging towards the end of the exhibition, they stumble upon a white column in a corner, and a golden plaque with the German word Nein inscribed. On it lays a box of chocolate bars. Blanchot, he takes a chocolate bar and holds it up. There is no artist here. I am the artist. Mm. I am the art. I give up. Do whatever you want with this, Maurice. This dialogue script was written by me, Yael, as part of the podcast theme on the reception of art. It is a made-up dialogue based on my research on Jean-Paul Sartre and Maurice Blanchot. A conversation that could have happened but is fictional. When viewing a work, do we see the artwork or do we see the artist? Do we have to connect the two or is there also authorship in the viewer themselves? In a way, this was also an exercise for myself in relating to someone else's work in the same manner. Just for some background, Sartre and Blanchot have both written extremely interesting essays on literature, art, the imagination and authorship. The oeuvre of both these French intellectuals spans throughout the Second World War all the way to the 80s. They were also writers of surrealism, yet with opposite agendas. In this fictional conversation, they discuss art that either demands a lot of engagement from the viewer, or that is more guided by the artist's intention. Sartre made philosophy fashionable. With famous images of thousands of students attending his funeral, he could be described as the first celebrity philosopher. He specifically saw freedom and responsibility as important endeavors. Because of his stern communist views, he would later cause many objections among other intellectuals. Blanchot's life, on the other hand, is more ambiguous. His political activities remained very polemic, starting as an editor for controversial magazines before the war, yet siding with the left in the 60s, and inspiring postmodernist thinkers today. He lived isolated in the later decades of his life, and in its own way he lived out his theory on paradox and impossibility. Want to know more about these thinkers? Read the podcast description for some recommended material. In the last segment, you heard young visual artists Eric Kamalettinov and Sava Koenika in the roles of Sartre and Blanchot. If one were to ask the question whether the reception of art is separated from the artist, many would say that they are inseparable. But can we be as radical as to neutralize this relationship entirely? Next up, I go into dialogue with Dutch artist Mike Eisenman. Mark is an interdisciplinary artist. His work intersects ecology and media art. 
His bio curiously states that he uses digital technologies to create processes that have their own agency to make works creating intimacy between us and the other than human. Art with its own agency. When I arrived at the venue to see the event of Mark Eisermann, one that would showcase his current research, I saw chairs and microphone stands set up in the space. I also saw many men, older, and dressed in striped shirts, red caps and clogs waiting around. I thought perhaps there was something going on before I came, another event perhaps, and that this group was still hanging around. However, when the host of the event announced the evening and announced the performance of the Shanti Choir, I was so surprised. I asked Rosa, are we at the right place? Is this Eisermann's artwork? and I, we were visiting one of your your shows there. We were met with a choir as your presentation uh, of the work that you're currently doing. Mm -hmm. So we were a bit surprised and we were wondering if you would like to tell us a little bit about this specific process, bringing in a choir. So my research started with, when you first think about biodiversity, you think about different species than humans for some reason and I was already working with these species from the beginning of my research um, but I was kind of missing a way to talk about different time scales and also the human scale so how do you bring in the human scale and the poetic scale into a project which can be very much about biology and that's can be quite far from us as humans or um, you can also bring in data about biodiversity for example like uh, how is the is the water a good uh, is it is it fertile water is there like a, a, a lot of biodiversity going on this can be data that you can use but i was missing the human factor and then i thought first thought well, what would it be like if i would give bring an old to these to this species with a singer or a brass band or um, what would happen then and then I thought no of course it has to be relating to the sea and to the port so I started researching I actually didn't know the word shanty choir um, mm. but then I thought but there are these choirs of old men who sing sea songs right and I started researching this and its history and that they, they were songs that were being sung on boats while they were working um, to hoist the sails, etc., etc., and this way I ended up contacting different choirs, and with this choir that I worked with, it really clicked um, because they were like, "Yeah, sure, like you're not crazy. Your idea is not crazy." Basically, they told me, mm -hmm. and they were really wor willing to work with me, um, and also because my project is talking about the history, the present, and the future of the Nieuwe Waterweg or the port area, and. Um, uh, I had this idea of letting the choir sing about how the sport area was, is, and always will be the same. There's this sea shanty or this song about this. Mm -hmm. And I subverted it and used it in a different way. So I, uh, I kind of did an edit of this song. The, so there, they'll be singing that. And he 
final installation. Of course, it's one thing to have a media or like have a media art piece in which you use some singing from a choir. And for the tests I did, I also heavily deformed it in the computer and I took out the accordion. So there was some glitches in the background yeah. um, that maybe wasn't played loud enough so you could hear. Mm. But there's also something in kind of sticking with it and then actually working with the choir, mm. however confronting that may be to uh, to go up to a choir and say, hey, I'm a media artist and I want to work with you. And I have this strange idea of talking about biodiversity in the Rotterdam port, not only through this species, but also by having you in my installation in some form. Um, that process for me is super daunting and scary, but it's also a lot of fun when it works out. And then I spoke to Florian, the curator of V2, he also suggested like, you know, you could record the choir at V2 and then maybe ask them to perform. And I did that kind of stuck in my mind. And I thought it's actually a nice way of paying them back. Like I record them and they have to do what I say and they have to, you know, have strange pauses in their singing. And because I want to, you know, mm -hmm. do stuff with this or they, they have to be on camera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that's only taking stuff from them. So. How do I give something back to these people is by offering them a paid gig where they get to do what they love most. Did you have an expectation of the viewers, of the people who would come? Did you hope for a surprise or some kind of uh, yeah, an unexpected reaction? It's a very thin line to walk when you invite a choir like that. It doesn't become a laughing stock. They don't become victims of us placing ourselves as, you know, media art loving people above another sort of culture. Mm. And what I think I was able to achieve is that they talked to a lot of people, also in between when they didn't play, so they played three sets, and in between they also talked to some people, mm. and uh, that you get to know them as people. So they were born in a different time than most people who were at V2. Uh, they sang songs that some of us know from kindergarten, like uh, What Shall We Do With a Drunken Sailor or something like that. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's also bringing together, bringing the audience closer to uh, these people who are an element of my work, and also to make sure that the audience doesn't think that I'm using them just for effect or to laugh at, but it actually has a function, and I respect them for what they do. Yeah, I think you already mentioned this uh, a little bit in the beginning but that, that this fragment of the Shanti Choir, at first glance, it seems totally different from, <laughs> from the rest of your work. So how do you plan to connect the dots, so to say? I must say I'm not super good at connecting the dots of my own work. I always think when you're an artist, you have the privilege to kind of research something different every mm. three months. <laughs> Though uh, I have been really like researching these topics around water. Yeah which is also something I did before while working on uh, organizing fiber labs, for example, with Fiber Festival, um, where we worked around bodies of water and uh, deep time and nuclear uh, um, uh, deposits, etc. But um, in this case, uh, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that I'm using elements which I cannot control or I I'm giving control out of my out of my hands to another entity. In this case, the choir. 
and a uh, marine worm that it will be part of my installation, which has to grow and I have to allow it time to grow. And in other work, uh, that which I did previously, which was just in the computer, it was, for example, I set up rules of how pixels would behave to certain sounds com coming in. And then I start playing my music and the computer with this organic video synthesizer would create the visuals for it. Mm -hmm. So I would be steering it. And I kind yeah. of like that as a sparring partner to have it as a... Yeah. And this is a bit what you mean with art having its own agency also. Yes. Uh, the art. Yeah. And for me, that's then very close to the other than human, kind of attuning to other than human. There is a link there, as in you can set up a computer system which has chaotic behavior, which you cannot predict. Um, and of course, when you start overgrowing a sculpture in the harbor or working with a shanty choir of 40 old men, you also don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Uh, and I think it uh, also has to do with a lot of my works, maybe you saw, are collaborative, so I hardly ever work solely by myself. Mm -hmm. This is something I love because there's something that happens um, when you work with, with other people or with an entity like this that you cannot predict before and I like to be surprised. the last few years I kind of got to realize there's a friction in my work in the sense that I come from a background where I used a lot of technology and I'm very privileged to know all these techniques and work with AI and do some stuff with the graphics and work with sound um, but I use this now to kind of create more intimacy or attune to the more than human um, through the lens of these technologies and of, co of course there's a friction in that because the more we use AI technologies, uh, the less uh, uh, coral reefs there will be. You could kind of make a link between those two. Um, and uh, because I get this question sometimes like, okay, but what kind of artist are you if you're work making work about ecology, but you're using data centers or you're using projectors, which are on for like six hours a day. But I, I, I really like this friction between it. Mm. What would you say, this is a very broad question probably, but what you, would you say uh, a, the role of an artist is? <laughs> because there are some artists who make works and then they finish it and then they have very clear ideas about how it should be and how it should be hanged and what is the idea of the work and it should not change. But for yeah. you it seems a bit more that there's space for... Yeah. yeah, I used to do a lot of live audiovisual uh, shows and it would never be the same each show. Like there's always something that changes right? just half an hour before the performance. I think, oh, that might also be interesting. And you try it on the spot. I did a lot of times try, like if I rehearse something too much, it becomes very boring for me. I played a show here at Rewire in The Hague when I was still doing live AV, but just by myself. And I was very stressed, it was a very busy period, and I programmed everything, like I knew what was going to happen. Mm. A lot, I felt like cheating, so it didn't feel like a lot of fun. I think it comes out of being an artist who used to work mainly with technology. Mm. And when you work with technology, it's very easy to have everything set. I mean, you basically fill in an Excel spreadsheet and you can then play that, <laughs> play that out, you know. Um, and you know what's going to happen. 
Mm. Um, and uh, that's not uh, necessarily the most interesting. I think when you talk about the role of the artist is then also to be surprised yourself and also to be surprised for new com com combinations that emerge during your process. And I, I mean, we now live in a time where lots of people are making money with boring NFT stuff. And of course, it's a way to make money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then I also think as long as I can sustain myself by doing research work where the process is open, mm -hmm. and this is something which V2 is very well uh, supporting, uh, like the process of stuff, yeah. uh, I would love to keep doing that as long as possible because otherwise you become a designer. It seems like that the most important thing about the NFT is this idea of owning it because there is this very clear protocol about how you own the work that gets imprinted into the mm -hmm. code or something. It's the most important thing. It's not really that important in, in the art world that that we just need to own it and have ownership yeah. over. I mean, of, obviously I can only talk from the perspective of, of an artist, not from a collector for whom I can imagine it's very important to own something. Also, there's definitely artists in our field who like to be the sole artists on the on the bill, you know? And this is also what I like in a more collaborative practice, which is really hard because because people are not used to it. People are not used to seeing uh, three or four different names for one artwork. Mm. People still believe in the myth of the sole artist. Yeah. Uh, and this is also something that I thought about for a long time and I thought for a long time, maybe I have to move more towards being uh, you know, the sole, art, sole artist. But why would I do that if it's fun to collaborate? Why would I? Well, it's, I mean, let me say that it's important that my name is on it for sure. Mm. But if there's some other names, I'm also fine with that. But I'm, I, I am all for crediting who did the work. Mm. So you mean more like uh, the authorship? Uh, yeah, the ownership is also more from a, from a con consumer like if you're a collector or someone who yeah, yeah, collects yeah. it, then it's more ownership. But we're, I think we're talking about authorship. Yeah, but yeah, authorship is different because then it just means that you were creating the work, but you give permission to let people interpret your work. Yeah, you make the starting point, but the, indeed the audience is also part of the equation because without an audience, it doesn't make sense. Mm. I think the choir that I worked with is in a sense also uh, the audience because they also get something from my process, if that makes sense. Because they also know what I'm working on. And I had this session with them where I was explaining them my ideas on the artwork. And then they all worked, or most of them worked in the harbor at some point. And they also started talking about the, the port and how it changed and when I asked them, like, what do you think will be left? They also start thinking about, okay, the, probably the fossil fuel industry will be gone. What will be there? Uh, what, will, what will remain? And I don't think these are things they think about every day, even though they sing about them. So there's this different, there's this funny friction there. Yeah, they, they don't think about it in that, in that combination maybe, but then when you stimulate it with your work, it will, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it will come in. Yeah, come together. Yeah. Um, I hope at least. <laughs> yeah, I'm really curious to see how it will end up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. 
From the conversation we just had, Mark Eisenman seems to be aware of the many active agencies that are at stake in his work process, whether human or other than human. Not only in terms of how the work is composed, but also how it is received. As a result, the work can transform and evolve by itself. Yet, the art is still initiated, which might still be regarded as a fundamental agency. But could we perhaps take it a bit further? Now, Yael gives a mini-lecture on the death of the author, or could it be the artist? Allegedly, the now worldwide known Dutch artist of the 20th century, Piet Mondrian, only became hip again after a plagiarized work of his surfaced. It is not uncommon that artworks exposed for plagiarism and vandalism gain popularity, and so does their makeup, even if this popularity is based on other people's actions towards the artwork. What does it mean for the role of the artist then? For this lecture, I would like to tell a story about a number of artists and thinkers whose life somehow got intertwined, willingly or unwillingly. Before that, however, we need to revisit an important concept in cultural history that could help us understand why and how this unusual intertwinement took place. The notion of the death of the author is set out in the famous 1967 essay The Death of the Author by French literary critic and theorist Roland Barthes. This essay sort of announces the movement in the history of ideas linked to postmodernism, where truth is not linked to one narrative, but is considered to be fragmented into a pluralism of truths and knowledges. Barthes argues against traditional literary practices that rely on the intentions and biography of an author to explain the ultimate meaning of a text. Instead, new insight can be gathered in the process of the reader's interpretation. Perhaps relevant to our times, readers must, according to him, separate a work from its creator in order to liberate the text from interpretative tyranny. Of course, this is up for debate. A work of art or literature spreads, as in the story of the Tower of Babylon. In this biblical story, everyone speaks a different language and is trying to build a tower to heaven so that there can be a divine and shared universal understanding. This is often what we try to do when interpreting a work. We try to understand the original meaning, the initial intent of the artist. However, perhaps every interpretation makes the reader or viewer an artist themselves. Perhaps we are creators in disguise, already by the act of conceiving and relating to the work. We tie together the elements of a piece of art and what it says to us or tries to say to us, like we once learned to read by learning the alphabet. This act of reading is an act of creation, while we're not even aware of it. Instead, we often idealize or mystify the original creator. This is what Bart meant when he announced the death of the author. Along with Bart, many novelists and philosophers played around with authorship and how through this perception can be challenged 
and with it also our relationship to our environment. German literary critic Walter Benjamin is a figure notorious for being an elusive thinker of the 20th century. He is often feared for being incomprehensible and difficult to read. Still, he is picked up by a lot of philosophers and also artists for his inspiring cultural theories and creative writing style. You might know him from his essay, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, from 1935. Interestingly, he also wrote many early essays on the task of the translator. He has curious perspectives on these two questions. Who is the artist or the author? And is an artwork inseparable from its maker? Benjamin lays out the art to translation and suggests that making a translation of a text is like creating an artwork. It is not really about making a translation as accessible as possible for a reader in a new language. Rather, a translation tries to weave together ideas in a similar fashion as the original author did. And besides, we can wonder, does an author, a poet, photographer or musician produce their art with an audience in mind? And if so, should they care about making it accessible? To grasp the full meaning in another language might mean letting go of the receiver. If you think about it, we praise Leonard Bernstein's renditions of Chopin's pieces on the piano as art in its own right, or we prefer specific translations of the Bible over others. Now there are inevitably things that are lost in translation, like there is a certain loss when looking at a picture of an artwork versus seeing the real thing. But there is also a meaning that can be gained or deepened. Translating throughout time is a performative act, one that reflects the culture the translator is in and through which symbols they interpret a work with. This relates to how we read a text, but also how we read an artwork or even read the land or cityscapes around us. Now, technological reproduction has challenged and perhaps demystified our aesthetic experience. The uniqueness of an artwork does no longer guarantee a heightened sensation. We no longer need to care about translating the meaning of a work of art. When everything is reproducible, even ourselves, Art can mean anything we want it to mean. Now that I've covered the theoretical part on Barth and Benjamin, I am brought to a curious event in the history of modern art. Namely, Benjamin's Mondrian lecture in 1986 titled Mondrian 63-96 at the Marxist Center in Ljubljana. This is where it gets interesting. This was a lecture about Piet Mondrian paintings from between the years of 1963 and 1996. But note that 1996 is 10 years after the event itself. History tells us that Walter Benjamin died more than 70 years ago. So how is it then that Benjamin is out doing lectures in the 1980s? His reappearance in Ljubljana comes from the transcript in the posthumous publication Recent Writings. He mysteriously ponders the questions raised by these pseudomondrians and posits that a problematic understanding of art is a reflection of the uncertainty of the human soul. All this might just show that history is just a story 
And just as there are different ways to interpret a text, a character or an artwork, there are different takes on historical persons as well. The lecture is being held sporadically to this day and in different languages. To unfold this story, I want to talk about a specific artist who has been preoccupied with Mondrian too. Serbian artist Goran Djordjevic is someone who has made copying an art form. Through Djordjevic's story, we can see how a work of art can change its meaning and role depending on the story in which it appears. Until 1983, Djordjevic had made it his practice to specifically copy harbingers. Paintings that were considered of little value, in an appeal to absurdity and triviality. When he started copying Mondrian's Composition 2, however, he realized something else was going on. In his recent 2021 publication, Remembering a Mondrian, he writes, In a way, copy has at least two layers of meaning. By making a copy, we remember the original. Each new copy is like a renewed memory and it can play not only one role like in art history, but different roles in different stories, both physically, that means on display, and symbolically, like in a narrative. He goes on, while an original stands for itself, copy is its representation, thus having the properties of a symbol. And in case of a symbol, its dimensions are often of secondary importance. He even went so far as to generate computer graphics of Mondrian's. And making Mondrian's and all kinds of pieces of furniture or any surface he could get his hands on. To then paint composition 2 by heart in the exact ratio according to the changing measurements. He had noticed that throughout opportunities to exhibit, that institutions expressed concern towards the measurements of his copies. Would they be the exact same size as the original? And is size then the determining factor that makes an original a one-of-a-kind? His initial motivation to choose Mondrian's composition number two, he describes as practical above anything. He saw himself as an inexperienced painter. The first copy he made, he painted in what eventually was dubbed a public demonstration in 1983, and it was called How to Copy Mondrian where he put up an easel and painted in public for two days in front of the original. The original composition number two was painted in Paris in 1929. It was later acquired by the Belgrade National Museum, but it was not exhibited or written about until being taken up in the permanent installation in 1952. In a way, Djordjevic managed to bring Mondrian back to life, or at least into the relevancy of the Belgrade art scene. Throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, it seemed the only Mondrians exhibited in public were those signed with Mondrian's name, but dated after his death. Naturally, Djordjevic wonders, does it make sense to put his own name on the label next to the works? Years later, Djordjevic is not sure anymore which of his copies came first and whether they are his at all, or rather copies by others. Also the one that appeared at the 1986 Walter Benjamin lecture, which showed two copies of composition number two, remains elusive because he had made only one for public presentation at that time. The mystery remains also which ones are copies of the original or copies of copies.
Some were made as single reproductions, but at some point Georgievich experimented with a different working method, namely of painting multiple canvases in an assembly line manner. What this all brings up is what connects the artist to his work. When is it a Mondrian or a Georgievich, or is anyone simply an artist? Or are we all amateurs? What implications does this have for museums and history? Georgievich suggests the following. Anybody can make a copy for various reasons. Substitution for an original, forgery, learning to paint, or one of these Mondrian paintings dated after his death. And in each of these cases, it will play its specific role. Also, if it doesn't make sense to attach the notion of an author to a copy, it is still possible for a copy to have the notion of ownership attached to it. The work itself as a physical object could belong to someone and be an object of transaction as a gift or commercially. What Georgievich's case shows is that the author or artist is not only dead, but they are undead. They take on different hosts and acquire an extra layer of meaning in a way that the original never could and never can. It moves and breathes with its time to be read, interpreted and applied over and over again. Its place of origin, its art historical context, or the artist's intent become unstable values. Challenging the notion of authorship might actually stimulate institutional and curatorial reception and recontextualization of art, and in that it might secure a certain sustainability for art and art practices in the age of mechanical reproduction. That was it, everyone. Special thanks to Erik Kamaletinov, Sava Königer, the Shantiko Barin Fox performing live during the 3x3 event at V2 Lab for the Unstable Media, and Mark Eisenman for taking part in this episode. If you want to know more about the guests and their practices, as well as extra source materials, please have a look at our description box. This podcast is made possible by Western Haag. We will be back soon with another episode, one which once again will be about the artist and their artwork. Following on from the reception of the artwork, what happens if this reception does not turn out to what we hope for?